Heavenly Father, we've been hearing your word from the Psalms and we've been singing words to you about uh, the way you lift us up. And we want to say thank you for that. And we want to say thank you, Father, for these words of Jesus. And we want to pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would challenge us tonight to hear what Jesus is saying to each one of us. Amen. Please be seated. Sorry, Mark. I wasn't sure whether there were more songs before I came up. Danger. Jesus at work. It's not meant to be the cliff collapsing or anything, but I think as we look at our passage tonight and as we look at the New Testament, we see, don't we, that Jesus is truly a revolutionary speaker. He challenges us at every level. And I don't know if you've been here for uh, this series in Mark's Gospel, but I have found it challenging concerning my relationship with Jesus. How do I relate to Jesus and his claims? Well, if you were with us last week, Alan brought us the message from Mark 9, the need not for us to grow up in faith, but for us to grow down, to be like children as we approach God. Jesus had been teaching and children had been brought to him. Well, if you weren't here last week, can I encourage you please to uh, download the sermon that uh, Alan brought us. It's on the church webpage. Because tonight's passage that we have in front of us develops and builds upon the message that was coming in Mark 9. Because Jesus is a great teacher, and as all great teachers do, he builds upon his message. He repeats his message, because we need to hear it several times. And Jesus is teaching here kingdom values to his followers and the general public. If you look back into Mark 9, verses 33 to 37, we see the revolutionary teaching of Jesus. He turns the values of normal society upside down. Because he says to them, if you want to be first, you must be last. And in chapter 9, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children or one of these children, in other words, those that were least powerful in that society, welcomes me. Jesus is teaching kingdom values that are opposite those of human society. So, please, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we're on page 1014. That's Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. And in this passage, I think we find that we've got, if you like, three small cameos or three small accounts, but all to do with kingdom values of how to receive the kingdom of God. What it must be like for us to receive God's kingdom. I don't know if you do this, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I try to put myself into that historical context. Okay, Jesus had been teaching and healing, and he'd been doing mighty signs and wonders, and he'd been gaining a reputation. And mothers and fathers of the area wanted their children to be blessed by this man who can do these mighty works and who speaks clearly about their need. 
And so they bring their children to him. Now, we don't know how many children. We don't know anything about the children. We don't know anything about the people. They were probably working class people, okay, smelly people, ordinary people, large people, small people. But they want blessings for their children, whereas the disciples wanted to push them away because they were stopping much more important things to take place. But Jesus is a wonderful teacher. And Jesus, like good teachers, used every situation to, as an example to amplify and explain the great, great truths of his message. And he does it here with reference to the least in their society. Those children who by nature would have had to trust their parents for their livelihood. And in this trust, he uses that as a way of showing what it's like to receive God's kingdom in absolute trust as a child trusts their parents. So this is the first cameo we have got in front of us, how to receive the kingdom of God in trust like a child trusts an adult. Because think about the child. They don't think of life issues as an adult does. They don't understand all the things that adults have to do or to think to provide for them. No, they trust that adult to provide for them. And Jesus is stating here that that this is the mindset in which it is necessary to come to God. To come to God in complete, total trust, dependent upon the work of Jesus and not in anything that we can do for ourselves. To trust that God has provided a way for mankind to come into his kingdom. There's no room here, is there, for human pride. Pride in any abilities that we can bring to God. Whether that be in our intelligence and our minds, or whether our wealth, power, or even our independence. There's no way in which we can earn salvation or coming into God's kingdom. No, It's in absolute dependence upon God and what he's done to allow mankind to come to him. That's the picture that Jesus is using of the child. Now, of course, this teaching of Jesus concerning receiving the kingdom of God doesn't mean that we should be childish in our attitudes or behaviour. He's not saying, for instance, that we should have paddies or stamp our feet as three-year-olds do. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying that we have to be simple. No, we're not being called not to think and use our minds. God gave us minds to use to understand the world in which we're placed. God gave us minds to understand how God has provided for mankind. But this does mean we shouldn't make the intellect that God has given us a God or put human reasoning above God's word. We need to recognise that there are things that we can't understand, things that can't be measured and scientifically analysed. Of course, we should ask the big questions of life. What's important? Of course we should. We should ask them. But it does mean that we have to trust Jesus for our salvation and bring us into that right relationship with God. Of course, having faith depends on upon trust and humility. And I would like to say that this isn't just a one-off activity for us. Of course, 
we have to come in truthful acceptance of, in trustful acceptance of Jesus' death on the cross for us at the beginning of our Christian life. But the challenge for us who are Christians, who are seeking to follow Jesus, is are we continuing to walk in this way? Are we continuing to walk in trust in Jesus? His ways, rather than relying upon our understanding and securities. So we read in verse 13 to 16 that Jesus encouraged the people to bring the children to him, using them as an example of how we have to come to God in trust, humility and acceptance. Of course, this isn't the only example that we read of in the New Testament where trust is very important in Jesus' ministry. Think of the examples of his healing ministry and his miracles. Do you remember, there was that centurion, that man who had authority over the Roman soldiers. And that centurion had a servant who was ill. And yet he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus to heal him. And he didn't ask Jesus to come to him. No, he just says, you, you say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus said to that man, your faith has enabled this to happen. And then we've got that example, haven't we? The woman who had serious uh, health conditions and she believed that she only needed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment to receive healing. She trusted Jesus and she did this and she was healed. And all through Jesus' ministry, Jesus asks and demands trust, humility and faith from the people he speaks to. And when he was asked, if you remember that account by his disciples, when he was asked why so few miracles had been done in his home region, he said there was a lack of faith and trust. So all through the New Testament, we see the need for people to have trust in Jesus. And the challenge for us is, do we have trust in him to be able to break into our reality, our lives? And do we have the humility to accept what he has done on the cross for us so that our sins might be forgiven. So that's the first cameo, if you like, the first of these accounts. The second one comes in verses 17 to 24, where we look and see how hard it is, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom. Because Jesus meets this famous rich young man. It's a story that uh, most of us will be very familiar with. So what do we see about this rich young man? Well, the first thing we see about him, he was eager because he ran. Now, the uh, commentary say to me that people in general didn't run in the, uh, in the time of Jesus in that part of the world because it was very hot. But he ran. He really wanted to know the way to receive eternal life. Well, what a fantastic aim to have in life. This is, I suggest, much more than we often face when we try and tell our friends about Jesus. We would welcome this, wouldn't we, if they said to us, what have I got to do to get to heaven? Can you imagine the situation on a Monday morning in the office or at school, one of your colleagues or friends comes to you and says, what have I got to do to receive eternal life? I'm so worried about losing my life. I really want eternity. What a fantastic opening that would be for us. Well, Jesus takes advantage of this young man's question because he expands 
upon the previous point of trust. Look what the young man was like. Look what he had done. He had kept the law of the Jews. We see that the writing says that he was a good man. He'd kept the law. And we read that Jesus loved this man. He recognized the good within him. Yet we also see that Jesus didn't pander to the man. He didn't pander to him at all. Yes, he was good, but he was dependent upon doing that good, keeping the law. He was dependent upon his wealth for acceptance and security. He was a rich young man, and he was surely to be known by this. And he probably would have been very popular because of it. Can you imagine the situation? He may well have had many friends, perhaps many young ladies who wanted to be his friend, wanted to be his wife, because he was a rich young man with all the advantages that that would bring. So what does Jesus do? Well, he offers him a choice, doesn't he? He stated that he wanted to turn to life. But was he prepared to give up that security for in goodness, in wealth, in status and popularity for the kingdom? Was he prepared to give these up to follow Jesus? Well, look what Jesus' response is. Look how he treats him. He shows true respect for the man by offering him a choice. Choices, of course, are what make us human rather than animals. Because choices gives us opportunities and responsibilities. Parents will recognise this, won't they, when they look at the development of their children. As they grow up, as they get older, they go through, uh, you know, childhood, they then come to teenage times, they get more choices open to them. And we would pray and trust that they have learned how to make wise choices. And Jesus gives the young man a choice Change your life direction. Give up the security and prestige of wealth and follow me. Well, what do we see happens? We read, don't we, that the young man was very sad and he chooses not to follow Jesus and accept eternal life. Jesus, of course, puts the man on the spot. You decide, what are you going to do? Why didn't he decide to follow Jesus? Well, we don't know, do we? Perhaps the price that Jesus demanded was too high for him. And again, this isn't a one-off, is it? No, we read in the Gospels how Jesus challenges those who would follow him. They have nowhere to lay their heads, he said. And if you go back to Matthew 10, we haven't got time tonight to look up the passage, but Matthew 10, 34 to 38, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. Father against son, daughters against mothers. Persecution. You will be persecuted in my name. So as we share Jesus with our families and our friends and our colleagues, there's a very important point here made by Jesus, that of giving people a choice. Because they have to know of the choice. What are they being offered? Eternal life with God or eternal life without God in hell. That's the choice. And they have to know the price required for following Jesus. We must not deceive them by promising them the good life, that's given in verses 29 to 30, the promise of eternal life without the price. The choice of giving up all for Jesus. That's the challenge of following him. 
Now, of course, for us tonight, the challenge is the same. Have we chosen to follow Jesus? We might have done so 30 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. We may have made that choice and then forgotten that this is an ongoing process. Now, this is challenging stuff, isn't it? I said, Jesus is dangerous. It's challenging stuff. Have I given up all I have for Jesus? Or am I relying on my security, my wealth, my pension, my job status, my relationships, even my religion? Would I be willing to give up all for Jesus? And it's an ongoing process that may well change as we go through our lives. But are we still hearing this? Or are we walking away sad because the price is so high? Because who in their right minds would give up the wealth and the riches and the popularity that this young man had to follow Jesus? Who would do that? Well, Jesus concludes with this. He says, how hard it is for the rich man to receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, perhaps we ought to pause at this point and just say what this passage isn't saying. The passage isn't saying that the poor are naturally spiritual or good and that the wealthy are naturally bad. There are, and there have been, spiritual saints who are wealthy, as there have also been spiritual saints who are poor. But it can be seen, as we look at society through the ages, that the wealthy often hold power over others, and their wealth can hold power over themselves. It's often more difficult, isn't it, to be humble and to trust in God when the temptation is to trust in your own wealth and power. We do also see, of course, that it's often amongst the poor and the marginalised that we see God at work, where there's great growth of faith. Look at parts of Africa today and parts of South America where the average level of wealth is way below that of our society, yet where there's great growth in faith and discipleship of Jesus. Perhaps it's easier to be humble and to believe in the gospel message, to rely upon Jesus when you have little of your own. We, of course, live in a proud society with a health service, pensions, state security, good jobs, high levels of education. And perhaps for many people, these take the place of the living God. So we've had it then, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. But thirdly, and the third little cameo, if you like, all things are possible with God. Look at verses 24 to 31. We read in this section that the disciples are crestfallen at this statement of Jesus. Because for them, the rich, those that are successful, he's saying that they're going to find it hard to enter the kingdom. And the disciples, for once, get it right when they say, who then can be saved? It's a really good question, isn't it? That we may well ask ourselves. Because if I go to work and start telling colleagues this message of having to give up all to follow Jesus, to be humble, to accept Jesus' offer of salvation from your sin... Do you think I will be mowed down in the rush to do this? I think not. I think not. No, it's very hard for mankind to follow this teaching. So the disciples asked then, how can a man be saved? Well, look at Jesus' reply in verse 27. 
With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It's what the theologians called grace, the action of God upon an undeserving people. You see how Jesus moves it out of the realm of human endeavor to God's endeavor. We can't give up all for God by our own efforts. We're too selfish for that. We're too weak for that. We can't persuade our friends to give up all for Jesus, but God can. And so this reply of Jesus in verse 27 points us to the way of Jesus. It's by the help of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whose work it is to convict people of their sin and bring them into the presence of God. And so this is God's work rather than our work. I don't know if you remember, but I'm reminded of that passage in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, where the disciples met together in the upper room. They'd already had some persecution, and they prayed together for power and authority to speak the word of God. And so we need to be like this, don't we? We need to be like these disciples. We need to pray and beseech the Holy Spirit to do the work with those that we are speaking with, to prepare the way of their hearts, that God's Spirit may be working in their minds and hearts. Because it's only through the work of God that people will be turned to Jesus. Now, of course, This doesn't mean that we don't need to plan and work like we've done for the last six weeks or so. No, we need to pray and we need to work together. But we need to pray for boldness. And we need to do this as we come together on Sundays in small groups, in prayer triplets. Pray for boldness in our declaration of Jesus. Pray for ways that we can bring this challenging message of Jesus to our friends in in 2010. Because that's the message of this passage. Jesus calls all people to humble themselves, to come in complete trust, to give up all to follow him. And of course, as I said before, it was not a one-off thing. It's a continuing process for each one of us as we continue to try to follow Jesus' ways. And that may well involve change in what we're going to do. It may well involve changes in the way that we spend our life. And I'm sure that many of you can share the excitement of doing this. I trust that Ruth Harnett wouldn't mind me mentioning her as a recent example. She's off to Ghana to serve God and seek his way for her life. Do support her in the weeks in the, uh, ahead. Pray for her that God may show her what, she, what he wants for her life. God wants us to give up all for him. So as we come to this communion service in thankfulness, where we remember Jesus' death for us, let's remember this teaching tonight, to come to him in humility, to come in trust and obedience. Remember that all things are possible through the strength and action of God's Holy Spirit and not of ourselves. Amen.